Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Laudine's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. I think the way in which we've sought constitutional change in this country is to expect lawyers to convince the Supreme Court. And I think we're seeing now that it's actually a dead end. That's today's guest, Julie Souk, a professor of law at Fordham Law School. Welcome back to Sidebar. We are excited to have you join us again. I want to thank all of you who have listened to the podcast and to welcome you who may be new listeners. My name is Jackie Gardena. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara, and I'm here with my co-host, Mitch Winnick. Jackie, great to be back on Sidebar with you this day. I'm Mitch Winnick, Dean of Monterey College of Law. We also have campuses in San Luis Obispo, Santa Rosa, and Bakersfield. Mitch, I'm excited to hear from our guest today. It's been a year since the Supreme Court overruled Roe v. Wade, but we have not directly addressed the broader implications of that decision, nor discussed how out of step we are with other constitutional democracies, including countries like Ireland, that have strong religious histories just like ours. Our guest today will not only help us understand the implications for the U.S., but also what we can learn from our own history and the efforts in other countries to recognize women's rights more broadly. Julie Suk has an incredibly impressive pedigree. She is an interdisciplinary and comparative legal scholar researching equality at the intersection of law, history, sociology, and politics in the United States and globally. She received her doctorate in politics from Oxford University and her JD from Yale Law School. She has authored dozens of articles and book chapters about comparative constitutional law and the procedural implementation of equality norms in the United States and Europe. Her newest book, and the one that we're going to talk to her about, is After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women and What to Do About It. It tells the story of women's struggles towards an inclusive constitutional democracy around the world. Currently, Julie is a professor of law at Fordham Law School, and she co-hosts a podcast with Judge Sugarman called Constitutional Crisis Hotline. Welcome, Julie. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start with your definition of misogynist, because I think it will help center our conversation. You don't define misogynist in the traditional way, through hatred or animus against women. It's actually kind of more passive than that. The laws of misogyny underestimates or belittle women's contributions to society while allowing men and society to benefit from and depend upon women's sacrifices. You say, and this is a quote from your book that I found so helpful, the misogynist is more parasite than predator. Why is it important to reframe the discussion in this way? I think it is important that misogyny is widely understood as hatred of women. And I think that's part of misogyny, but it's only one part of it. And it's important to understand that hatred as stemming from a larger legal order that was actually quite normal for 
much of our nation's history and the entire Western legal tradition. And that's to say patriarchy, a system that depends on the subordination of women. And that subordination of women was not driven primarily by the hatred of women. It was driven by the need to achieve certain social aims and one way in which the law made arrangements for, say, the reproduction of the species and eventually the building of nations, the raising of new citizens, was to ensure that the society as a whole, controlled largely by men, would benefit from the sacrifices and often the pain, unseen pain, invisible pain sustained by women for society's benefit. One of the things that I think is really important, especially as we turn to talk about the what's happening in the, in the United States right now is Roe v. Wade identified the right to abortion in the realm of a privacy right. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things you argue is that that actually is not an appropriate way for us to think about the right to reproductive health care, that we need to think about it more as a public issue. And that's where I think that framing of parasite is so helpful because it's really about kind of taking from women's labor, literally, and women's work. So can you talk a little bit about what new legal pathways are opened up by reframing it as a public rather than private issue? I think that Roe versus Wade, by locating the abortion right in privacy and in liberty under the Substantive Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment, really made it seem as though the really important aspect of having a right to abortion was simply the ability to make decisions about one's body. And I think the right to abortion is actually much more than the right to make decisions about your body. It's different from saying, I'm going to wear a mask or get a vaccine or get a nose job or what, you know, it's, it's much deeper than that. And it's deeper because of women's role in childbearing under patriarchal legal orders, as well as under legal orders like ours that purport to be egalitarian. And in legal orders that were patriarchal, it was women did not have a choice as to whether to bear children. Uh, that was their role and their destiny. We've said that women and men are equal, but I think that banning abortion is a way of forcing women to continue to bear sacrifices that are really not only for themselves, but for the common good. When a woman uh, carries a pregnancy to term, even if she gives that child up for adoption, it's really the society gets to have a culture of life. The society has more citizens. Uh, the society has more workers. And typically, women are the ones who are expected to raise those citizens and workers without any compensation and without adequate valuing of the work that they put in. I found your book most fascinating because it helped frame this patriarchal scenario, not in an anti-woman, but in what you've just said, the pure economic advantage that we've chosen as a society in giving no economic value to this whole range of things that we've taken for granted women will, will do in child rearing, homemaking, all of the other aspects of what we take for granted. You framed it in a way that made sense to me. 
Is that the first step to help those of us who've just grown up taking, taking for granted these things to stop and say, yes, we've A, given no value, and then B, the systems we've put in place actually have done so little to improve that? Yes, absolutely. So I think that just as lawyers, maybe the helpful frame is we could tell the difference between wrongs that are torts or even crimes, particularly when we think of we start with injury or violence. And I think that's often the way that we have thought about sexism and misogyny, that it's injury and violence and hatred. Uh, but there's another aspect of the way that we think about a just legal order. And arguably, it's something that's less pronounced, perhaps, in our legal system, but very well developed in many other legal systems that in democracies that we consider our peers, the idea of unjust enrichment. I think we need to think about the subordination of women, including through abortion bans, but not only through abortion bans, through that lens as well, uh, because women are uniquely situated to bear children uh, and because our culture and tradition has uh, imposed upon women uh, the duty related to the biology, although not necessarily mandated by biology, but related to that biology, women have traditionally been assigned the role of caregiver. I think because of that, uh, we extract tremendous public benefits from women uh, without recognizing that as a form of unjust societal enrichment. And I think that framing is really important for really addressing many of the sources of women's disadvantage that don't come from overt forms of hatred or discrimination or even rape or violence, even though they're related to those things. We are going to take a brief break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to continue our discussion with Julie Souk about her book, After Misogyny, How the Law Fails Women, and how we can create an inclusive lawmaking process and economy that better reflects and recognizes women's work. Are you getting ready to start your bar prep journey? Kaplan is the only major bar review offering live instruction with both live and on-demand classes. With Kaplan's bar prep, you get the ideal amount of structure and guidance, no matter how you choose to prep. Join a real-time or on-demand class, stay on track with personalized study plans, and learn from expert attorneys. Kaplan helps thousands of professionals pass the bar each year. Start your journey today. Find your bar review at captest.com slash bar. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at or visit our website, trellis.law. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? Law School prepares students to serve clients with a breadth of specialized knowledge within the legal realm. Law Practice affords us the wisdom only experience can teach. 
But what about the technical skills that bring it all together? Who's addressing that need? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertus is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. The LTA pairs competence-based assessments with synchronous active learning to provide effective, tailored training. ProCertus is reshaping online learning with a market-unique platform and approach to the upskilling and validation of skill sets for all legal professionals. Come check us out at www.procertus.com. You discussed how the changes in, in the law alone or using the current law may be insufficient to kind of shift the paradigm. So we also need to build an infrastructure that supports true equality. And part of that infrastructure is actually creating an inclusive lawmaking process. And I, I want to put that in the context of the Dobbs decision, Great. the case overturning Roe v. Wade. In Dobbs, the court ostensibly gave to the states the power to decide whether a woman can access an abortion and under what circumstances. Yet in 2023, women made up only 33% of all state legislatures nationwide. But the percentage varies from state to state. In Nevada, yes. where 60% 60, where 60 of the legislature are women, abortion is legal. In South Carolina, where just 14% of the legislature uh, is, are, are women, it is not. Um, can you give some examples how women here in the United States or in other countries have kind of created successfully an inclusive lawmaking process? Well, I think it's difficult. It doesn't map on that neatly uh, in terms of being a woman does not predict with 100% accuracy whether you're going to support abortion rights or not. And in some of the legislatures that have been passing some of the most restrictive abortion bans, some of the sponsors of that legislation have been women. Although in South Carolina, it's very interesting to see that women across the political spectrum in South Carolina, the, the small number of them in the South Carolina Senate filibustered a very restrictive abortion law. Uh, so I, I just want to complicate the picture a little bit that I don't think that gender predicts where you stand on abortion. But I think that is really important in terms of the legitimacy of our democracy and maybe looking at some historical and comparative examples. You've already, um, I love that you brought up the temperance example, which I find uh, one of the most fascinating in my work. But um, if you look at many other constitutional democracies, what's really remarkable with regard to this is in the early parts of the 20th century and certainly the moment after World War II, what's really remarkable is that you see extremely conservative women from Christian democratic uh, parties come into coalition with extremely left-wing women from socialist and even communist parties at the moments of constitution making in Germany at Weimar in 1918, 1919, and also in um, after World War II and in Ireland in 1937. And I think that what they converge on, and this is often not all of these countries, but many of these countries, uh, they agree that mothers should be recognized and get the protection of the community. And there are constitutional provisions that say that in Germany and France and many constitutional democracies around the world. And I think it's because of the experience of war. Often you get constitutions that emerge after war uh, and wartime often upends 
gender roles because all the men uh, are fighting and women end up doing jobs at home that are normally done by men. And this ends up calling into questions all the assumptions people had about what jobs women can or should do. And I think you that's what you see in many parts of Europe after World War I and World War II. And you saw that in the United States, too, with the Rosie the Riveter and the gender role switch, but we didn't have the same movement, uh, or at, at least the, the placing it within the constitutional order, as you saw in Europe. Well, we do, we do get, we do get the nineteenth, we do get the nineteenth amendment after World War One, and and I think if you think about how long the nineteenth amendment kicked around before finally being successful in nineteen twenty, uh, I think many historians would say World War One was a significant factor in um, changing people's understandings of women's role and the importance of their vote at that particular moment. I just came back from a, an extended visit to Europe, which always gives us an opportunity to look at our country through a different lens. And it struck me two things based on what you just said. One, we ran in, my wife and I ran into a couple who were just finishing their year of maternity, paternity leave. Paid. Where they were traveling. Their, yes, they were traveling with their three-month-old, and we're now going to have to go back. But both of them had off, which goes to that very point that you talk about in your book of establishing both the roles of both mothers and fathers in, in parenting, which is not the same in this country. But the other thing that strikes me is the underpinning of some of those cultures that are a thousand or two years old still has an aspect of socialized services where the government plays an active role in these decisions and has for possibly hundreds of years. We look to our country, we're a couple hundred years old, and it's the Western mentality of cowboys and ranchers and breaking through. And, and there are not many women's stories in that. And so to what extent do we have to overcome perhaps maybe just the naivete of being such a young country that in so many ways that you're talking about is simply unsophisticated? So it's really interesting to me that you describe our country as young compared to Europe, because when you think about constitutions, which is, I know that's not the only thing we think of with regard to the legal order, but that's, I think, very important to the extent to which you think the government is responsible for and how the government is permitted to act with regard to this. We're actually much older than Europe. We have one of the oldest constitutions in the world. Uh, and its amendment rule is one of the most notoriously difficult and demanding amendment rules, which explains why we don't have an equal rights amendment to the U.S. Constitution proclaiming gender equality. Most of the European constitutions, uh, of course, these societies and legal orders are arguably a thousand, two thousand years old. You could trace back some laws back to Roman law. But that said, the constitutions that I'm talking about are 20th century constitutions. Uh, that are really like post-World War I and the primary moment of constitution making in Europe and in many countries around the world is after World War II. And then those are the models that Latin American and Asian countries have looked to uh, and um, African countries, uh, countries that have written constitutions throughout the later part of the 20th century and early 21st centuries. So if you think about a modern constitution, some of, the, some of these countries that are actually putting equal rights 
uh, and uh, and the, the equal rights provisions are really important because that is really the first step to uh, just to get back to Jackie's earlier question, how do you ensure that women are actually empowered and included uh, beyond just symbolically being told they have a right to vote uh, or uh, they have a right to non-discrimination? Uh, and it really starts with mid 20th century provisions that say women and men have equal rights in all spheres. Julie, the U.S. law, at least recently, talks about equality as being treated the same, that if men and women are equal, then the laws can't treat women differently than men. It derails the efforts to recognize women's contributions to society. How have European countries avoided that trap? By the time you get to the end of the 20th century, some people, uh, and there's legislative action, some people understand that to mean that something's wrong if you don't have equal numbers of men and women represented in positions of power. So you should have rules that ensure that. And in some of these countries, constitutional courts, like in France, the Constitutional Council strikes it down and says equality means you treat everyone the same. And that means you can't have an equal representation rule that says you have need to have a certain percentage of women. That's a gender quota that's unconstitutional, right? Uh, the gender quota that's unconstitutional. That's actually pretty consistent with the way that our Supreme Court has consistently thought about equal protection for at least the last 50 years, right? Uh, but in these countries, once the courts did that, uh, women mobilized and then amended the constitutions again. Uh, they amended the constitutions to make clear the vision of equality means that the law shall promote uh, the actual implementation of equal rights and eradicate disadvantages that now exist. That paves the way to having quotas for women in politics, uh, which it's a dirty word in the United States, but in most of the rest of the world, it's a pretty normal way in which democracies have been able to get equal representation of men and women in their positions of decision-making power, both their legislatures and on corporate boards. And Julie, I, I want to go um, sticking with kind of Mitch's point about Europe and how it might be different from the United States and another dirty word in our country, which is socialism. You have this great quote in the book. I just found it so powerful. Other countries have social safety nets. The U.S. have women. Women are the shock absorbers of society's primary dependencies, absorbing the non-market costs of meeting the needs of children and elderly parents. So given that social safety net is necessary in some ways to shift the burden from women to society as a whole, we would need to rethink our kind of economic model and that rugged individualism idea. And I'm wondering, because socialism is used as a scare tactic in the United States, can we move beyond the laws of misogyny without changing our views on the social safety net? Part of the reason I wrote the book was to suggest, I mean, I don't know if I, we, we could use the label socialist, but I, I actually think that it's been a mistake to think that we could dismantle patriarchy simply by saying non-discrimination in the market. And I think that building the infrastructure means the government is responsible for the education of children before they're five. And I think you're absolutely right that this was something, the fear of socialism was what derailed our actually getting a child care policy in 1971. But I want to point out that 
you can you can call it socialism. And I think often that label is used to sink something. But the thing that's being sunk, whether you call it socialism or not, actually has at various moments in our history, including now, garnered uh, a huge amount of support from both political parties. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. When we return, we're going to consider the provocative question, does the United States need to rewrite the federal constitution to achieve inclusive lawmaking and true equality? The dream of becoming an attorney is possible at Monterey College of Law. I am a first-generation law student. I have a lot of people in my life rooting for me, encouraging me to pursue this career. According to the National Bar Association, 5.8% of American practicing lawyers are Hispanic, and 2% of those attorneys are Latinas. So I am pursuing the American dream. Si se puede. To learn more or apply, visit montereylaw.edu. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Let me say that I buy into this argument. It's obvious to me. Everything you've written about the historical narrative, the comparison to what other constitutional democracies have done, makes perfectly good sense. Take us from today forward. We now have the historical narrative that said there were times when grassroots caused change, states sometimes stepped up and caused change, the federal government did periodically and in some meaningful ways, and the court has. I look at the current status of the United States, politically and socially, and I wonder where any of those avenues provide us a process for change. I know I'm being a little, a little discouraged in that, but I, I, how do we jumpstart this or pick up these threads? Where do we go? I mean, you're so enmeshed in this. Give me a path of hope. <laughs> well, I think that in a country that's as old as ours in terms of the Constitution and as large as it is, I think there's no choice but to look at multiple strategies but I think each strategy is a little bit flawed. So I could talk about, so we could talk about states. And I think after Dobbs, we're seeing a lot of really interesting activity in the states in reaction to some of the very restrictive abortion bans that some legislatures are passing. I think it is interesting that many states have a possibility that we don't have at the federal level of amending the state constitution by the people. 
So I think a lot of the fights at the state level will be around people mobilizing using actually workable amendment rules, notwithstanding that those who, who control the amendment rules might then fight back by making the amendment rules harder and veer in the direction of the federal super, super majority rules that we have to amend the federal constitution. But I think that's one important avenue. Anywhere you see a possibility of people mobilizing and referendums being used to, to make law, including constitutional changes. So building some momentum in those states where there's the opportunity to get these type of laws on the books yeah. is a start. Yeah, absolutely. But I think we also now have to look at why Congress has been so unable to act. I mean, if you think that obviously people have different views as to whether or not Dobbs was a real disaster, but if you think Dobbs is a disaster because it ends the right to an abortion, we can establish a right to abortion at the federal level. We could codify Roe. And the Women's Health Protection Act, which was passed by the House in the last session, would have done that. But in the Senate, they would have had enough votes were it not for the Senate filibuster that requires 60 votes to pass legislation in the Senate. And I think at the time when you had Democratic majorities in both the House and the Senate, but the inability to pass a lot of legislation like the Women's Health Protection Act and even the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act, which had bipartisan support, but stalled and stalled in the Senate because they couldn't get 60 votes, even though the majority supported it. That was the story for a long time until it finally passed at the 11th hour in December. Uh, of 2022. So you see stories like that, and that makes you think there's a real problem with the design of Congress, which dates to 1787. And it's unbelievable that you all in California get two senators, even though you're 70 times the size of Wyoming, you get the same number of senators. So we have a lot of anti-democratic imbalances that are part of our constitutional design. And I think many Americans, especially young people, the way that we educate kids in civics, they don't question those structures. I hear a lot of people, young people, thinking that we live in the greatest democracy in the world. And uh, if you think that we live in the greatest democracy in the world, it's hard to raise a critical eye to aspects of the design that made sense in the 18th century for whatever reasons, under conditions of slavery and an agrarian economy uh, that absolutely do not make sense now. These are all anti-democratic practices, and these are anti-democratic practices that have entrenched power on many issues, including issues having to do with reproductive rights and women's rights and the status of women generally. We have taken advantage of, in our most recent generation, of a Supreme Court that was sensitive to some of these balance issues and willing to step into the fray. Clearly, that is gone for the near term. We now have what some people think easily 10, could be 20 years forward of a conservative court that doesn't reflect many of the things you've just said and would not be a vehicle to moderate some of the state laws or even the federal laws. You talk about young people stepping up and looking to the future. Is that the message? I mean, this is a 20, 30, 50 year change as we look forward. I think the way in which we've sought constitutional change in this country is to expect lawyers to convince the Supreme Court. And I think we're seeing now that it's actually a dead end 
from the beginning, the Supreme Court was not well designed. Uh, today, the idea of giving life tenure to appointed justices where only the president and the Senate, not the House is actually arguably a portion, gerrymandering and other issues aside, compared to the Senate, uh, it seems more democratically representative. The House has no say in who gets to be on the Supreme Court. Uh, and so if you think about the Supreme Court as being anti-democratic because of the appointment process and because of the life tenure feature, which is really out of sync with the way that modern democracies work, it's a little bit crazy for us to think that our ticket to constitutional change in the direction of inclusion would come from the Supreme Court. And I really do wish that we would stop thinking that way and we would try to make Congress functional again in trying to achieve our aims with regard to our rights. But it's also understandable that people don't go to Congress because its design has also made it extremely difficult to pass legislation that most of the country supports. Fundamentally, I think that the path to change really has to be towards being critical of the constitutional design itself. And of course, that's extremely scary because what I'm suggesting is that unless we start changing the way that Article 5 works and or thinking about a new constitution, not like right now, but as something that's desirable to replace something that we've been living with for almost 250 years now, which is abnormal in the modern world, that um, until we start thinking of it as not a terrible thing to want something new, uh, until we have a critical mass of people thinking in that way about how we get to an inclusive and feminist democracy, I don't think that we're going to see a lot of change. Uh, we're going to have a lot of Band-Aid solutions uh, we're going to have a lot of temporary fixes that seem less bad than how things could be, at least for a short while. But I don't think that we'll really overcome the misogyny, as I've defined it, until we think much more uh, structurally about resetting the whole machine. Julie, we sign off each show by asking our guest to really talk to the audience and say, what can they do? What would you close with as encouragement or guidance to our listeners to say, okay, you've got my attention. I believe in this. I believe we need to work on this. What should I do? I would encourage all the listeners to reread their pocket constitutions and pretend it's not their constitution. Uh, just read it from a detached perspective uh, and cross out the things that they would not adopt or write themselves. Very good. Julie, thank you very much for being our guest today on Sidebar. Mitch, I was really looking forward to talking to Julie today, but it had so much more richness than I anticipated. I mean, her book was rich, but I think the discussion about the anti-democratic processes in the United States and how we really need to address those before we can really have conversations about some of those more divisive concepts in the United States. I think the point that she made, which I think was a really helpful one, is it's not so much about reaching my outcome or a process that reached my desired outcome, but one that responds to the needs of the polity as a whole. 
And we're not getting that right now, whether it's about abortion or other issues under the current system that we're in. And it is such an important topic for us to address. And I really appreciate that she reframed it around that and, and not just about kind of the right to abortion. Jackie, you and I agree on most things and wrap up most of our shows reinforcing our agreement. I think this might be a show where I disagree some. And I disagree not on the findings. First of all, let me agree 100% on how she framed these issues in her book, After Misogyny, I thought is a read for everyone. It helps us frame the economic issues related to equality that go well beyond those that you've pointed out on abortion, healthcare, things like that. So I agree on that. I probably disagree because I am a little discouraged in the current state of the process for change. I do agree that citizens themselves should organize and speak out for these types of changes. But I'm very discouraged about the pattern of what's going on at the State House, as we learned with David Pepper in an earlier program. I'm very discouraged about the inability to legislate at the federal level, and I don't know how we'll break that logjam. I'm informed by her suggestion that, as the liberal she claimed, I might be looking too positively for a court during an era that would step in and and correct or change or direct some of these things, and maybe that's misplaced hope. So I do worry that despite the need to recenter the economic valuation of all of our society, and in her case, in the argument she makes, particularly related to the value that women bring to all aspects of society, I just don't see that path. And maybe it's just um, old and crotchety, but I, I'm worried about that, and it's one of those few topics we've had that I don't see a clear path forward. Well, and, and I think, because I must have the last word, I think one of the ways that you and I differ, perhaps, is if I said I don't see a path forward, then that means that I should give up, and I'm unwilling to give up. I do think... There's so many things this country does well, uh, and there's so many times where we've been able to overcome incredibly challenging circumstances within the polity, the, the Civil War and the Reconstruction Amendments that followed. That was huge. I believe that we can see that again, and if I don't believe that, then it's just difficult for me to get up in the morning. So I must believe it. Well, as usual, I'm going to end this with hoping that you're correct. I usually am. So that works. (laughs) Once again, I want to thank everyone who joined us today on Sidebar. And as always, Mitch and I would love to know what's on your mind. You can reach us at sidebarmedia.org. Sidebar would not be possible without our producer, David Eakin, who also composes and performs all of the Sidebar music. Thank you also to GoGo Zoger, who manages Sidebar's marketing and social media. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated 
to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org.